And take your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah, chapter 28. We leave our brief respite in the happy passages to go back to, uh, at least for a season, some less happy ones, though there's some wonderful uh, encouraging verses in here. I would remind you, um, part of the sermon, this is just off topic before we go, but part of the sermon, it's important to be reminded that we are meeting with a God who is outside of time and space. And here for a second. If you meet with a God who you think is only inside time and space, when you come to his Bible, you're only going to look at it, cause and effect, where it's located on the timeline. So you're going to be thinking about, okay, who is Isaiah, and what did Isaiah write to the people that he would, that would read it? And that's important, and you should be thinking about that. But because we worship a God and are meeting with a God who is outside time and space, all of time is laid out before him simultaneously. He's constantly looking at all time at the exact same time. So when he wrote this, he's writing it for Isaiah and the original reading audience. He's reading it for the Jews that would read it 100 years later and the Jews that would read it 100 years after that and the Jews who would read it 100 years after that and the Gentiles who would read it 400 years after that and us that would read it 2,000 years after that. That's what makes the sermon so special is because our God is outside of time. When he speaks in his word now, when I read it to you and then when, we, when I preach, he's speaking to us directly through his word and spirit because he is the God outside of time. Hear his word even today. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who's mighty Strong like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in his hand. And that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back at the battle at the gate. Those also reel with wine, stagger with strong drink, and priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit. Yeah. With no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk. Those taken from the breast. For it's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. 
For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose. They would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, a little here, uh, sorry, here a little, there a little. That they may go, fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you from morning by morning. It will pass through by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. But the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, As in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed, his strange, his deed, and to work his work. Alien is his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong, for I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin and put in what uh, wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as at the border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No. He does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. I love how this chapter ends with that one. <laughs> He's wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. After a series of verses that most of us are like, I have no idea what's going on. So appropriate that we ask for that wisdom. Now, Lord, you've told us in James that if any of us lack wisdom, we should ask and you give generously and don't scold. Thank you that you don't scold but give, and so we would ask. Lord, would you please share your wisdom with us now? Uh, We ask for Christ's sake. Uh, Amen. I was in a meeting with a bunch of pastors a handful of weeks ago maybe six or eight weeks ago. 
We were discussing, local pastors and local churches, discussing the nature of the church, the evangelical church, a healthy Bible-believing church in the Fort Mill area. And we're from different denominations, from different churches, but even as we were discussing, one of the things that we were lamenting and marveling at is, humanly speaking, how poorly the church has done in the northern York County area. You would think with the population exploding the way that Fort Mill has exploded, you would expect churches to grow and flourish and to explode as well. But interestingly, over the last 15, 20 years, as Fort Mill has kind of exploded as a nation, I mean as a city, that the church has by and large done the opposite. By and large, not Christ Ridge alone, but by and large, the church as a whole has not particularly grown in the Fort Mill area. As our population has more than doubled in the last 15 years, we were sitting down counting. I don't think we could count more than five churches that had built buildings in the last 15 years, two of which I I don't think we would probably count as churches um, from denominations that we would say probably are more apostate. And we were lamenting how that was a reality. Uh, They were discussing their church planting network and saying that even they were having problems with their church planting network. They couldn't get a a plant to take here. I was saying, I I think we've had, I don't know, eight churches die within five miles of where we're currently sitting. Conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing churches can't can't get traction. We were lamenting and, and wondering why it is. What is it that makes this place so hard for the church to grow? Now, providentially, most of us were from churches that were healthy and no room for us to kind of say, look at us, we're doing something special because we're not doing anything particularly different than some of the other churches that didn't make it. But what is it about this soil that makes it so resistant to gospel growth? And really, one of the things that we kind of ended up saying as we were, I guess, lamenting is in many ways, even as Fort Mill has kind of flourished as a town, York County flourished as a county, there's been an element of really, we could say, spiritual, emotional, personal, just decay. As people have come in and as the wealth has increased, so has the decay, kind of national decay, really, if you look at how it lines up with the nation as a whole, but really in our region, And I think this passage probably speaks to that in a way that I hope is useful to us. You're going to see there's really kind of two parts as we're going to look at it as it describes in the first part what a nation in decay looks like. What what is spiritual decay in a people group look like? And then the second part we're going to look at is kind of really what do we do with that? Kind of how do we safeguard our hearts in the middle of that decay? Well, we've just finished the section where Isaiah's describing the end times, and now he's kind of been jumping back and forth in time the way that he likes to do in the book. He's kind of all over the place and makes it very challenging to figure out sometimes when he's exactly writing or uh, which part in history he's writing about, but now we know where we are. He's jumped kind of back to his present. Uh, We think most likely this is him writing kind of toward the middle of his ministry, writing before the northern kingdom has fallen, and now he begins to speak about the northern kingdom, the northern people of God. 
And he begins to address what that nation in decay looks like. What does it look like for a nation to leave God? What does it look like for his people to leave him? What does spiritual decay look like? Well, there's three kind of major themes that we see show up very quickly. Uh, Verses really one through eight, but with an aside taken out of. It deals with the issue of drunkenness. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Ephraim, the northern kingdom. The fading flower of its glorious beauty is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. He begins speaking of the northern kingdom as a kingdom filled with drunkards. Verse 3, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Verse 7, these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet, they're swallowed by wine and stagger with strong drink. It's a nation of drunks. Now, is it, we're going to say, the problem is they're just all alcoholics? Is that what's happened here? Are we talking about a nation that they just drink too much and so they're in decay? And I suspect that's actually not ultimately what Isaiah is getting at. I suspect really what he's actually getting at is he's using an uh, alcohol uh, as a metaphor for the larger context of their life. <clears throat> Excuse me. That what they're dealing with here is a nation of people who have elevated their pleasures to the point of controlling their lives. That when you go to evaluate what their ethics are, when you go to evaluate what their priorities are, when you go to evaluate what their budgets are, when you go to evaluate who they are, their life is dominated not by obedience, not by discipline, not by focus or preparation. It's not dominated by the Word of God or even by their constitution. You're looking at a nation that's dominated by their pleasures. And you have it kind of building to this kind of uh, kind of climactic condemnation there in verses 7 and 8 that this isn't just limited to the common people. It's not just limited to the masses that you have a nation, or worse yet, limited to the politicians. We don't trust them anyways. But here, no, it's spread to those that would have been responsible for changing and and altering the lay of the land. It's spread to even the priest and the prophet. Rather than having visions of who God is, rather than have visions of His Word, They have visions of drunkenness and confusion, being discombobulated and overwhelmed. And in fact, actually, it's become such a problem as a nation that the entirety of their nation is so consumed with this hedonism, this sensuality, the term that Jude uses, that verse 8 is kind of the final portrait. It's all full, (laughs) In fact, actually, all we could kind of say it today, all the bars are full, and in fact, the seats that are empty are only empty because somebody's barfed on them, because they've had too much to drink. Their, their pleasures have become so overwhelming and so problematic, they've, they've kind of filled up the nation and are now overflowing with the consequences, overflowing 
with the destruction. That's a problem, right? It's a gross illustration. I love the Bible. Uh, In case you haven't figured this out, the Bible's not always a nice book to read, as by Southern standards, certainly not a Victorian book to read by, you know, many standards. Here we have verse 8, just one of those kind of gruesome and gross kind of illustrations in the Bible. I love the Bible. But what you have presented is, I think, far more disgusting in general, is a nation that's so preoccupied with its pleasure that the pleasure itself receives primacy of place. The pleasure is what becomes kind of the dominant, overwhelming worldview. I will chase pleasure at all costs. Remember when I was early in seminary reading one of the kind of current theologians of the era, this is the early 2000 and aughts, and I remember him writing that uh, the primary ethical system in America was an avoidance ethic. Meaning that if you kind of grew up in the late 80s into the 90s and the early 2000s, the thing that you had been taught is that your mission as a human, your mission as an American, is to avoid pain at all costs. He'd written a lengthy um, amount on this, and it was very helpful for many of us as we read it to analyze kind of our culture to think about how many people structured their lives around this idea that I have to avoid pain at all costs. Uh, we got to see many of the people who grew up in that era, and this is the era I grew up in. We turned into kind of you know, brittle little snowflakes because we had been told we have to avoid pain at all costs. And the problem is you then interact with life, and uh, in the great words of the wonderful movie, life is pain. And you can't get away from that. It, it follows you. It is. But I suspect we've entered into a cultural change really in the mid-aughts where we left that idea of life is about avoiding pain And we shifted to life is about pursuing pleasure. Life is about pursuing the things that make us happy, that make us fulfilled, that make us feel good. That's why I suspect we've watched a nation change largely in its view of drugs and alcohol, right, where some of our states regulate um, sodas more than they regulate the use of marijuana. That, That always makes me chuckle. Right? The one thing we have studied is uh, not regular, or the thing we have studied is uh, not regulated, where the one we haven't is regulated, or vice versa. I said that backwards. We're watching a nation that is uh, kind of fallen in love with itself on the internet, able to pursue all sorts of fantasies and desires to, to again, make us feel the things that we want to feel. The increase of Uh, aberrant sexuality as a nation, as a people group, and even, we could horribly say, as a county. A pursuit of pleasure above all things. I suspect many of our friends and our neighbors in this town maybe probably wouldn't say that quite so publicly because it's fairly uncouth even by southern standards and really a non-southern town like Fort Mill. But if we got people cornered and quiet and in private and in places where they're able to actually engage the reality of their hearts, we'd have to really kind of admit, no, God is actually describing me very well here. That the thing I spend my life on is just trying to make myself feel good. 
And the problem is, it isn't working very well. I want to feel good. I want to feel better. I, 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 want, to, I want to be happy. I want to be happy. It's just not working very well. Well, this produces a very specific relationship with the church. It produces a very specific relationship with the Word of God, and there's a very fun Hebrew joke in here, and I'm actually going to use just a little bit of it to help explain it. Verse 9 turns to a quote from the people that have been described in verses 1 through 7. So 1 through 7 describe the drunks, those that have elevated their pleasure to the highest of all highs. And then verse 9 switches to their quote, verses 9 and 10. They now speak of Isaiah. They speak of the prophet of God. They speak of the one who is actually proclaiming the truth. Now, what should they say? They should say, woe is me, I'm a a man from a people of unclean lips. They should say what Isaiah himself has said. But instead, what do they say? What do they say about Isaiah? To whom is he going to teach? What is this crazy man going to say? Who's he going to talk to? Who's he going to explain the message? Oh, he's too simple. He just talks to children. Right? That tone of voice is probably written in here, right? Those who are weaned from the milk, those who are taken from the milk. Oh, he just talks to babies. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And then verse 10, in the ESV, they put it into English so that it does translate to something that we can read. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. It's actually just gibberish. It's baby talk. They're making fun of him. Right? They're ridiculing the pastor. They're ridiculing the prophet Isaiah. To whom is Isaiah going to teach his knowledge? He has the word of God. He says he does. Who does he talk to? He talks to babies. And what do babies say? Blah, 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 blah. And it is baby talk. That's what they're making fun of the man to say, look, what is his ministry like? What does he talk about? He doesn't know anything. He's just a man filled with nonsense. His words are as meaningless as the babbling of a baby. Ba, 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 da, da, mama. Just baby talk. Now notice that this is incredibly sharp, isn't it? That their pursuit of pleasure has corrupted their relationship with the Word of God. So that their relationship with the Word of God now is no longer one of apathy. It's one of quiet militancy. Where they're rejecting God's Word as a thing that is only fit for babies. What is this man Isaiah? What is he proclaiming? What truth does he have to say? His message is just baby talk. He doesn't know anything at all. Doesn't know anything at all. What does he know? What does he know? The consequence, verse 11, interestingly, here for Ephraim, it's like God saying, well, okay, (laughs) If you think it sounds like a foreign language because it's baby talk, it doesn't make any sense to you, well, yeah, that's actually going to be exactly what happens. Because you are actually going to have a people, verse 11, that are going to invade you and they're going to speak a different language. 
And so it is going to sound like nonsense to you because it is nonsense to you because you're not going to speak their language. This destruction will fall upon you from the Lord. And as a result, it will be just like baby talk. It'll be nonsense to you. And that will be part of your destruction. So it's interesting, you get to see kind of a, a starting point within a movement that follows, a, a starting point of an elevation of pleasure to the highest good of life, which then moves their understanding of the word of God. It sours it, and it makes sense, doesn't it? The Bible tells me that I can do some things, I must do some things, but it also tells me I may not do some things. Realistically, this is one of the things that some of us uh, don't uh, emotionally and easily always enjoy about the Bible. It tells me how I have to live, and guess what? I don't get to be the one who sets the terms. I don't get to be the one who establishes the rules. I don't get to be the one who determines exactly what I get to be or do. God's the one in charge because it's his word. Well, the problem then is if you've elevated your pleasures to the highest level and you've then kind of rejected the word of God, you have to find something to replace the structure. Hedonism, the, the, the elevation of pleasure to the highest level, it, it only works in concept. It doesn't work in practice. Uh, the reason for that is that not everybody shares the same set of pleasures, and in fact, the kind of American version of this is you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, uh, kind of forsakes or forgets the idea that most ultimate pleasures hurt someone else. Uh, usually, those ultimate kind of pleasures in that kind of way are good for one party and detrimental to someone else, and just by nature. Uh, I want more money, so I'm going to take all of yours. Why not, Right? Well, that makes me feel better, gives me a better life. You don't need your money, I'll take it all, right? And it, it's problematic. And so you have to have something that replaces it. There has to be some sort of mechanism to provide some sort of structure to that life, some sort of kind of provision of, of safety and security and hope. And that's actually, we see, that's the next movement that takes place in the text. Verse 14 through 16, and we get to see, well, 14 through 18 really, this is where it's mentioned, but... Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. Here's the, the kind of rebuke to them, you uh, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we've made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we've taken shelter. They didn't literally make a, a covenant with, with death. Right, so again, if you're kind of new to the Reformed tradition, covenant is a word that we talk about all the time, uh, as well we should. A covenant is uh, a bond and blood sovereignly administered. It is the most uh, sacred and binding of all agreements. Uh, it is a kind of usually used in the, the idea of it is a, an agreement that has life and death consequences. 
Uh, it was a term that was reserved in like, you know, feudal, uh, the medieval uh, era where the relationship between a lord and his vassals where he could summon them to go fight for him. Uh, it was a covenant because if he didn't kind of provide safety for him, they could stage a coup and kill him. And uh, as part of that, uh, because they were using his land, they had to then fight for him as part of military service. It was a life or death kind of agreement. And what interestingly here Isaiah is calling them out for is that you have made a life and death agreement, uh, false rulers, with death itself. Now, what in the world is that? (laughs) We know, again, from where this is taking place in history, what's happening is, you know, Israel is kind of geopolitically in a terrible location. I mean, if you think about where Israel as a nation has been located for the entirety of kind of known history, it might be the worst possible place in human history to be located. I mean, think about it. How many years of peace has the Middle East had since roughly, I don't know, 1200 BC? Not many. Not many at all. In fact, actually, if you actually pay attention to the way history works, you have what? Let's see if I can do this backwards. Water here. Israel here, and you have one enemy, two enemy, three enemy, four enemy, five enemy, six enemy, and then one big one down here that you can't see because I can't gesture down that way. There's enemies everywhere. And the whole point of it was an object lesson that the Lord was going to teach them because he also forbade them from having the most advanced military technology. (laughs) So he said, geopolitically, you're going to be on the worst place on planet Earth. And I'm going to forbid you from having the most sophisticated army on planet Earth. And instead, what you're going to do is you're going to trust me, and I will kill everyone that comes against you. If Egypt comes against you, I'll have the sea eat them. That's pretty cool. They won't fight back for a while after that. If the Assyrians come after you, I'll send an angel, and he'll go kill 185,000 of them in one night. One night! And they won't fight back for a while after that. If uh, a different nation comes after you, I'll send a prophet. They'll all get converted in one, you know. He'll be the one who defends them. That was the plan. The problem is, as they have elevated their pleasures, and as they have then rejected the word of God, you've got to find something else to provide some sort of structure and hope. Now, they should have been hoping in God, but instead they weren't. They had to find something else to place their hope in. So they were making agreements left, right, and center with other nations. In fact, actually, we know at some points in history, uh, Israel, water, enemy, 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 enemy. They're playing one enemy against a different enemy, hoping that the mutually assured destruction might push time out on the whole thing imploding. At this point in history, we know they've even been in contact with Egypt in order to protect them from Assyria. How bad is it when you have to reach out to Egypt for help? Kind of putting that in modern language, like modern language, that would be like the Jews today calling the Nazis for help. You hear that and you're like, I can't believe he said that from the pulpit. (laughs) That's not really a funny joke. It's still too soon. No, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. That's what the Jews were actually doing is they're saying, look, we have enemies to our north, uh, specifically to our northeast, that are so dangerous. We got to have the Nazis to help us out. 
I mean, Egypt wasn't that bad. They only enslaved us for 400 years and killed a whole bunch of us and made us do terrible things, right? They're not that bad, right? What they've entered into is what Isaiah, I love, lovingly kind of calls, you've entered into a covenant with death. Rather than the Lord being the one that's dictating your ethics, rather than the Lord being the one who's dictating your, your uh, understanding of the world, rather than the Lord being the one who's dictating your, your understanding of truth, rather than the, world, the Lord being the one who's dictating um, just your provision and your safety, and you, you're replacing it with fallen things. Rather than letting the Lord be the substance of your life, These people were replacing that substance with created things, with fallen and broken structures and institutions, with evil nations. And as a result, you have Isaiah calling it that covenant of death. With Sheol, the grave, you have an agreement that when the destruction comes, This covenant, these promises with these fallen nations, these promises that have been made to these fallen people, they will protect us because our God will not. These are the things that will provide meaning and safety and truth and reality and hope and joy and goodness and love. These are the things that we will hope in instead of our God. Reading this this last week and thinking through these, I was like, my goodness. If that doesn't describe the current place that we live, I, I don't know if I've ever heard anything that does. A people group, if you think about York County as a whole, that has by and large enough money to pursue our pleasures, which by and large, interestingly, has produced not a great love for the church, but an aversion to it, which is then producing people that are in bondage to death. In bondage to death. I mean, you think about it as we talk with our neighbors and our friends around here, don't we? I mean, people that are so consumed with their 401k, so consumed with how the market's going to do, so consumed with being perpetually online and the false reality that that is so consumed with the happiness they can't quite seem to find so consumed it's bondage to death which I think is an intriguingly kind of bleak and grim perspective on really the neighborhoods around us the neighborhoods that we live in And then honestly, if we're going to be truthful, the struggles that we ourselves have. Because I think if we're going to be really truthful about this, this kind of threefold movement is not a movement that we're immune to. I wish it were. I wish it were that the second that you become a Christian and you have the Spirit of God residing in you, I wish it was that we were instantly immune to that, you know, the love of pleasure which then sours the Word of God, which then places us in bondage to lesser things. I wish we were immune to that. I wish there was some form of kind of Christian vitamin or vaccine that if you would got it and you took it, you never were you never tempted that way ever again. 
The problem is that's not the case until glory. Death fixes that, which is grim and wonderful to think about. But until then, or the second coming, a challenge that we're confronted with constantly. Well, how do we think about this? Uh, I think there's, again, kind of three things that in light of the text here we need to be thinking about as we contemplate this kind of movement through the text, this love of pleasure which then rejects the word, which then places us in bondage to to lesser things. Uh, I think there's really kind of three things that we need to consider here. Uh, One uh, is hope in the triune God. This is a grim chapter. It's awful. It really is like not positive in many ways. Verses one through six, one through, uh, well, one through four, one through eight, depending on how you divvy it up, but it's, it's all dealing with the destruction of Ephraim, you know, where you have this nation of drunkards that are gonna be destroyed in their drunkenness and everything. But I love how in the middle of it, you just have the Lord drop these wonderful things in verses five and six. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Just kind of out of the blue, just out of nowhere. The Lord's like, hey, hey, by the way, this nation that's fallen in love with pleasure, that's, that's going to be destroyed for its pleasures, that even this nation's whose pleasures are going to be part of the problem, in the midst of it, he just out of nowhere goes, oh, and by the way, my people are still there, and I'm still taking care of them. That remnant Anytime you hear that word remnant, those are the true believers. Those are the ones that know the Lord. Those are the ones that are saved by Christ. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't left them. I I find that wonderful to think about. That northern kingdom is so evil. They're so in love with their evils and their pleasures and their things that you think of them as a nation basically being wiped off the face of the map. That's what happens. They don't have a single good king. They're rotten to the core. And interestingly, the Lord is still saying, look, I've got people there, and I haven't forgotten. They're mine. They're mine, and I have them, and I love them, and I care for them. You have the same thing happen in verse 16. Well, 16 and 17. Right in the middle of a section, again, the destruction of this nation that's coming, right? The destruction of the northern kingdom. And here the Lord in verses 14 and 15 is, you know, blasting them for rejecting the word of God. In verse 16, he drops this gorgeous foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, you're expecting more judgment. This whole chapter is judgment, more judgment. Behold, I am, and there's your name of God, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. I'm the one who started the holy city. This is an image that's from the very beginning of the book, a competitive building program. Who's gonna be the better builder? Will God be the better builder or will the Jews be the better builder? You tell me who's gonna be the better builder. And God says, I'm the one who started it. I'm the one who laid the foundation and I have laid a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation which is taken up in the New Testament. And what is he talking about here? It's my kingdom. 
and it's going to win, and I know it's going to win because I have Jesus and Jesus wins. I love this just beautiful foreshadowing of the Lord explaining just he's doing it and the church is his and you don't have to worry, you don't have to stress, you don't have to panic, you don't have to be, the Lord is in charge, he's got it. He knows what he's doing. I love how really you get him in Trinitarian form here. You, You see the Trinity at work. The Lord promising his spirit in verse 6, promising his son in verse 16. And it's interesting that, friends, if we're going to defeat that kind of threefold movement of the world, the, the pleasures of the world, followed by rejection of the word, followed by bondage, if we're going to defeat that, our starting point has to be in some fashion, a hope in the triune God. A hope that He is as powerful as He says He is. A hope that He is as good as He says He is. A hope that He is as great as He says He is. A hope that He is as wise as He says He is. A hope that He is as kind as He says He is. A hope that He is the God that He Himself has described. Otherwise, you end up with anxious Christians twitchy Christians, insecure Christians, Christians that, that, that think that God probably is that until they hit hard times, and then they question if they should be Christians at all, because the God they've worshipped is only a God of the good times, not the bad. You realize that's why, again, this kind of starting point here and we're challenging is to to be consumed, preoccupied, intentional, and focused and hoping that this God is who he says he is. Nothing will stand in his way, that nothing will bother him, pester him, frustrate him, limit him. Now, that's, I think, in many ways, a good safeguard for our hearts. I can be safe against the world because I hope that God has me. He's promised in his word and I'm trusting that he's going to keep his promises. He's going to keep me safe. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. But that doesn't give me the motivation in any way to go out there and deal with them. Does it? That gives me the motivation to run away. That's like, ah, I'm going to be protected. The Lord's going to take care of me. They can burn. I don't really care. Right? Well, verses 17 through 19 really work us through that. 16 introduces Christ. Verse 17 reminds us of the reality that's coming. I will make justice the line. And righteousness, the plumb line, this is like a builder's term, carpentry or masonry, right? If you ever watch uh, the guys out here that work so hard laying bricks, you know, where they put the two stakes down on either end and they run the string in between really, really tight so you know where the wall is supposed to be. It, it measures what is straight and level. Or if you're a carpenter and you measure out the chalk line and pop the chalk line and it loves the, you know, the little blue line that as a kid loved doing with dad when you're working on the roof or whatever else. God is the one who will establish justice. God is the one who will measure. And guess what? He will be victorious. 
Verse 18, he will destroy his enemies, even those that have a covenant with death. That covenant's not going to protect them. And verse 19, his wrath will consume. I would say, friends, our current kind of station in life, our current calling in the world in which we need to live, we probably need to think just a little bit more about the fact that everyone around us in this town, if they do not know Christ, they will pass from this life into His wrath. Into His wrath. That's one of the things Nikki and I have talked about with the submarine this, this week. I'm watching the submarine on the news and figuring out kind of the mistakes that they've made or whatever else, and I'm not an expert in any of that. But finding that kind of balance of being able to appreciate some of the, the humor, right, the Titanic claiming new lives, but the grimness that the second that sub imploded, those five people were standing before the Lord of Justice. I mean, I've been ready. And two of them profess Muslims, I think, right? Everyone around here is the same way. We don't need to take that lightly. That every man, woman, boy, and girl that lives in your county, when their life ends in this place, they will stand before the Lord himself, the one who judges perfectly and destroys the wicked. I think perhaps this is one area where the Reformed Church has maybe not done quite a good enough job of reminding us emotionally of the weight of that. Reminding us that evangelism is really important. We don't want them to receive that end. But let's be honest. Evangelism in York County is hard. (laughs) That's where my actual introduction started, wasn't it? A group of pastors and elders standing around saying that very thing. Evangelism in York County is hard. People don't want to listen. And they're going to head directly into that life to come, head directly into that judgment and that justice, even as Tom prayed, where they will understand that there is a God and that He is indeed holy. And that's where, really, verses 19, really, through the end of the chapter are so wonderfully helpful. Now, the the farming illustration is a bit confusing for many of us. Not everybody, as we have some farmers in the room. But the idea here, 19 through the end of it, I'm going to go quickly because I know I'm late, is that our real hope is not in our own abilities. Our hope is not in our uh, cleverly persuasive words. Our hope is not in the success of our church. Our hope is not in how comfy our chairs are. Certainly, you'll fall asleep. Our hope is it's not in how nice of people you are. Our hope is in the Lord and the Lord alone. We hope in God. We rem- reminded that He is the judge. But then even our, our hope of success is in the Lord. Right? Verse, um, well, 20, you have the funny illustration of the short-sheeted bed. 
right? Uh, a man who's too long for his bed sheet and is uncomfortable, is too fat for his bed sheet, doesn't cover him sufficiently. But verse 21, the Lord will rise up. He's going to do his deeds. He's going to work. They'll, they won't be the kind of deeds you expect. I mean, even the disciples didn't expect the right kind of Messiah. Lord Jesus shows up and they're expecting some you know, great Roman warrior to come kill all the Romans or whatever, some Jewish warrior to come kill all the, the Romans and they're confused. That it's a poor carpenter who's gonna die on a cross and defeat all evil. They're very lost by that. But the Lord's gonna work. He's gonna do his deeds. He's going to do his work and therefore you don't make fun of him. You hope in him. You don't ridicule him. You trust in him. You rest in God and delight in Him. And you trust that, farming illustration's coming, that even when His works are hard, that even when He destroys His enemies, He's doing something. And it's something good. Because, verse 29, He's wise. He's infinitely wise, far wiser than I am, far wiser than you are. He's the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, his name. And so our job in this place, men and women, boys and girls, is to gather and perfect the saints as best we can through word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship, hoping that our God will keep his promises, knowing that his promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus and resting assured that we have his spirit, the guarantee, the down payment that our salvation is real. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for really hard passages that make us think. They force us into humility, and we thank you for that. Would you please forgive us for our sins, but instead, Lord, would you give us your spirit that we would um, grow in grace, but even grow in this uh, zeal, to gather and perfect the saints. Uh, Lord, we acknowledge that many of us are more afraid of um, men and women, boys and girls, uh, than we are afraid of the God who made us. And as a result, we're more afraid of them and don't evangelize in any way. And would you give us a little bit more of a burden, we pray, for Christ's sake, amen.